First Peter is where we are tonight. So if you check the back of your handout, it's got a little bit of the structure. We won't spend much time there, but we do this consistently almost every week. So I wanted to throw that your way just so you have that for tonight. And that breaks down the book. It even goes into, if you like alliteration, it even goes into the fancy alliteration. And it's fancy. I mean, it alliterates three different ways. So uh, that chart is from the main book that we're basically walking through part of it, uh, which is walk through the scripture, and we're doing a book a week, part of where we got the idea. If you want to get a more modern version of that that's not quite so long, it's called The Bible from 30,000 Feet. You can get that book as well. It's a newer version of Talk Through the Bible that basically we're going through. So that's there. That's on the back of your handout, the structure. If you turn to the front, we'll talk a little bit about the introduction, the setting of the book, what's going on when Peter writes this letter, what causes Peter to write this letter, all that stuff. So background, Nero was put in uh, place to be emperor of the Roman Empire, and I don't know how much you know about Nero or his story, but it's, uh, I'm just going to share a few minutes of it, and there are some things that I can't even, shouldn't even say. I mean, because his life was just debauchery. Uh, So he was put in place to be emperor of the Roman Empire following Claudius by Claudius's fourth wife. So Claudius was the emperor. He gets married. He goes through three wives. uh, He's on his fourth wife. Her name is Agrippina, I think. And so they get married. Nero was her son, but not his. So they get married. She brings Nero into the marriage. And she convinces Claudius, the emperor at that time, that Nero should be the next emperor instead of Claudius' son. Britannica, I can't remember his name, I think something like that. So when Nero was 17 years old, a few years later, Nero and his mother plot to poison Claudius, and they succeeded. Now, I don't understand this, um, but she is, first off, she's Nero's niece, So you go, nice, classy. She seduces him, I'm not sure at what age, and that leads to them getting together and getting married. So she's his niece. Uh, She was married three times before him, and she poisoned all three of her first three husbands. So you'd think, as the emperor, he could do his due diligence and do a background clearance check. Like today, if you're around the leader of a country, you have to do a, a clearance check, top security clearance check. You'd think that he would have conducted that. He had to, I'm thinking he had to have known that. I don't see how he could have not known that as being the emperor, but maybe his passion overwhelmed and he said, well, this time it'll be different because we're in love. I don't know, but uh, she's nuts, he's nuts, Nero's nuts. So now uh, they poison him. So now Nero's emperor, 17 years old, just poisoned the previous emperor. Four years later, Nero decides that he's going to kill his mother. This guy's just classy all the way around. He tries to poison her three different times, but she's been on the other end of that equation. She's pretty clever, and she avoids his attempt all three times. So then he tries to build a canopy bed, and it was designed to collapse and crush her when she first slept in it. But somehow she managed to get out of that alive when it, before it collapsed. So then he sends her out in a boat. At this time, she's got to be thinking, okay, my son gives me a gift or something. I have to deny it. So then he sends her out on a boat that he says he builds for that was built to collapse and sink very quickly, but she was such a good swimmer that she even survives that, swims back to shore. So then he finally decides that he's going to stab her and beat her to death. That's a surefire way, so he does that, kills his own mom. So Nero's just 100% class. Now, this is the guy who's on the throne when Peter writes this letter. So just digest that for a second. That's the background and the setting. When you hear him say some of the things he's going to say in this letter, and we probably won't have time to get to every, all of it, just think, okay, this is the guy who's on the throne right now. This guy's insane. Um, I've heard some preachers say they believe that he was demon-possessed, and I don't think that that's too far off. I think that's very possible, very probable. Nero has a fire started in Rome. Now, some historians say, well, he didn't do that, but the evidence points to him. Nero has a fire started in Rome. Nobody's 100% sure who did it. While he's at a play, and after the play, he goes and learns about the fire, so to speak. 
so-called, learns about the fire. And after the fire, he needs a scapegoat. So who does he blame? He blames the Christians. He said, look, they're always in their uh, allegories and their uh, future prophecies. And even right now, they teach about being tested by fire. And the earth is going to be renewed and, and burned up by fire. And the elements are going to melt. And they, they preach all these sayings. And so they're so fascinated with fire, I'll just put, make them the scapegoat. So he blames the Christians for the fire. And the Christians in that area by Nero are killed, covered with fresh animal skins and fed to wild dogs, dipped in oil and set on fire so he could have his night games and his different night activities, one of which was to ride around naked in his chariot while just, I, I'm going to stop right there. The Roman Senate got so sick of Nero that in the year 68, they voted to have Nero flogged to death. But before they could arrest him, he commits suicide. This was after 1 Peter. So this guy is just nuts. Uh, this is the guy who's on the throne when Peter writes this letter. So just keep that, bear that in mind. So the author's Peter. It says it in the first phrase of the first verse. But it was either written by Sylvanus or might have been delivered by Sylvanus. Because if you look, for example, at 5.12, so if you jump ahead and you look at chapter 5, verse 12 of 1 Peter, the beginning of the closing comments, it says, by Sylvanus, we think that's a rendering, same name of Silas, who traveled with Paul and knew him well. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I considered him, I have written you briefly. So he either delivered the letter and or I think more likely he was actually the guy that wrote it. So Peter tells Sylvanus, hey, write this. Sylvanus actually writes it out. Uh, it's a little more polished. The Greek grammar is a little more polished than we think Peter's education level would have allowed. So that's another reason why we think Sylvanus may have written it. But, hey, Peter, I mean, just because you didn't have a high, class, high Greek education when you were little doesn't mean you can't learn it later. So I don't fully follow that theory, but that's possible or maybe probable. But look, 1-1 says the author's Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter plays a massive role in the early church. If you want to later, go read through Acts 1 through Acts 15. Chapter 1 through chapter 15. The role that Peter plays in the church is massive. I, 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 there's no word I can say to communicate it enough. So go read through Acts 1 through 15. Take note of where he appears and what he does. Huge role. He's also mentioned multiple times in Galatians, but then after Acts 15, Peter disappears with no details at all about what happened to him. And we're not 100% sure because Scripture does not say. Why didn't Scripture say? I have no idea except to say that Jesus, that God is the main focus of Scripture and not Peter, but I, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Now, Origen, who was an early church leader, says that Peter was crucified, that he requested at his crucifixion to be crucified upside down because he was so gripped by his Savior that he considered himself unworthy to die in the same way that his Savior Jesus did. So that he was crucified, but probably upside down. So tradition says that that's what happened to him. Just like tradition would say Paul was beheaded. Uh, it would say John died of old age. Wasn't, it was the only one who wasn't brutally killed. So what's the audience of this book? Who's Peter writing the letter to? You know the situation, you know the author, who's he writing it to? Look at 1-1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the, what's that say? Pilgrims, some translations have sojourners, temporary residents is what that word means. And I don't think Peter's just saying, look, you weren't from the area of Turkey, but you've traveled there temporarily. I don't just think he's saying that. I think there's more to it. I think there's a theological application of what he's saying there. One of the reasons I think that, many reasons, but one of them is 2.11. We'll look at that later. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts. He's saying, look, there's this world that you live in, but you're really just a temporary resident here. Uh, this life is temporary. We're not living just for this life. We're living for the life to come, the kingdom to come, the world recreated by Christ to come. And so uh, I think that's not stretching that one word too far just to say uh, you're a pilgrim here. So who's the audience? To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is modern-day Turkey, basically. We would call Asia Minor in the biblical times. They were suffering rejection from their culture because of their obedience to Christ. They were suffering uh, verbal abuse and physical abuse. 
both. It, was t- it took both forms. And if Nero got a hold of anybody, of course, he was back in Rome, but when uh, the believers in that area, he was just horrible to them. Okay, now content. What I did in your notes was, um, I didn't want to have a million fill-in-the-blanks things, but just to keep you tracking along with me, the only fill-in-the-blank we did for tonight is the passage. So I'll list the passage, and then that's a summary of the passage following. So this is chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, your inheritance of salvation. See that one? Chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. We'll try to make it through all 19. We may have to fly through the last, but you've got it. And if you want to go home and read it later, you've got the sections. So chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to the Peter, to the pilgrims, So that word literally meant temporary residence. So to view the culture and the people around you in the right way, I really think you've got to, you've got to adopt the same viewpoint that Peter had. And he makes it clear. I think he makes it clear here. He makes it clear in chapter 2, verse 11. You can go there or just listen. 2.11, where he says, beloved, so that means it's a phrase believers would use for each other. So he's talking to believers. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, there's that word again, abstain, stay away from, fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he's going to go on and talk about not going back to your previous behavior. So he says, look, I'm living in this world, but only as training and preparation for the next world that Jesus himself will be the ruler of. Jesus himself will be the president of the world to come. And lest you think there's a vast gulf of separation between our faith, our religion, our faith in Christ, and civic, civil government, there isn't. In fact, there's a parable in Luke when the parables are teaching about what the kingdom of God is like, okay? So the parable when Matthew renders it has a little to do more with money and money management, and he doesn't go into the rewards as much. But when Luke tells the same parable, or maybe similar, when Luke tells the parable, it's a sum of money in the management of it, but the guys who manage it right, he clearly says the reward from Jesus. You know what the reward is? So Jesus gives them a sum of money. They manage it and grow it for him. And literally, part of their transactions are just like today. They invest it with the bankers and it grows interest. And Jesus commends them for that. He says, good job. So there's an expectation to grow God's money for God. and That's there. But then Luke actually mentions the reward. You know what the reward is? position in civil government. In the world, in, not in this world necessarily, although that could happen too. In the world to come, when Jesus rules, he's the, if you could say the president, he's the king, he's the potentate, he's the president, and then under him, we'll have positions. And listen, I don't know, there's Christian theories uh, that oddly enough kind of line up a little bit with Mormonism, although not, not the same message of salvation, but just theories about inhabiting all the different planets, that they are meant to be inhabited and will inhabit them and populate them and rule over them. That's possible. Or if it's just here on earth, obviously earth is going to be the home base of that, the new Jerusalem resting over the physical Jerusalem on earth. Jesus is going to rule that, but part of what he says your reward is position in civil government to rule and reign with him. So what in the world? I think sometimes the church today just thinks, well, we should never talk about those things and we should never. Well, wait a second. If I'm supposed to be salt and light, that's what Jesus tells us to be, right? What does salt do? Salt preserves. So I'm preserving God's character in this culture. What does light do? Light shows the way to Christ. Light shines shines light on darkness, reveals darkness, all those things. So if I'm supposed to be salt and light in this culture, but yet none of us are supposed to be, we misinterpret Jefferson's phrase in one letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, which had nothing to do with constitutional uh, It was a response to a specific issue. He says this phrase, separation of church and state. We totally misinterpret that, and we think, oh, so we're not supposed to be involved in the civil arena. That's hogwash. That's absolutely not biblical. In fact, part of what Jesus says I reward you for in my kingdom for being a good steward of my money is position in civil government in Luke. So he says, look, um, you're living in this world as a pilgrim, as a temporary resident, but you need to understand something. You're not, because of that, you're not just living for this world. You're not ignoring this world. This world's important. But it's really just a training ground for the world to come. It's important because of the world to come. And so that's it. Now, it doesn't mean you should become a hermit and ignore everyone else and everything else but your fellow church members in this world. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean 
that it's because the next world is coming. You know, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is he telling us to pray for? He's, what I just talked about, that coming kingdom, that coming rule and reign, that it will physically come here on earth. He's telling us to ask him for that. He's telling us to pray that. And eventually, in his perfect timing, he will honor that prayer and give a yes in that time and, and usher that in. But that's, that's it. But it's because the next world is coming that you should be serving your fellow church members and having a ministry here and serving as an extension of this church to influence those outside these walls toward Christ and his love for them and the fact that he has a purpose for their life. It's a both and. So it's not that, oh, the world's coming, the future world's coming, I'm just going to park it and become, uh, join a monastery and become a hermit and never come out of my shell and just wait on that. No, my, acti- my actions and in, in my influence on people in my ministry now are even more important because of the fact that this world is coming and because of the fact that this world that's coming is eternal. Once you enter it, whatever state you enter it in, it's set, it's locked. I, I can't enter eternity having rejected Christ and then go, oh wait, I wanna, I wanna change my mind. It's too late. So because all those things are true, it's more important for us to not be the hermit, to actually get out there Go make disciples. Go point people toward Christ. Pray for people. Go start that conversation uh, with your neighbor who's weird and you don't want to talk to him, but you're, you're supposed to be salt and light, so, so you just go do it. Hey, you want to grab coffee? Tell them your 10-minute testimony at coffee. You're not beating their door down, and then you hand them your card. You say, here's my contact info. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm next door. You know, something like that. So he says, look, to the pilgrims, he says, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God the Father set all this up. There's an awesome Trinitarian statement here. He says, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. So the Holy Spirit that God places in me once I'm saved. Sanctification means growth, to look more like Christ. So the Spirit's job, once I'm saved, is to live and dwell inside me and to help me grow. Sanctification, that's what he's talking about. So there's a second member of the Trinity. Then he says, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ third member of the Trinity. Christ shed his blood for my salvation. The sprinkling word is reminiscent of, if a Jew reads that, they immediately go to the mercy seat in the temple. You enter the temple, you enter the holy place, and then once a year you enter the holy of holies in the back of the temple, and that had the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid. Remember with the angels and their wings were covering and pointed toward each other, covering their face? Because God's so holy, they were just, I don't know if it was a bowing reverential deal or a covering of the face, but they're I don't know what that looked like. You know, uh, I think, what's that, what's that Harrison Ford movie? Indiana Jones. I want to believe that it looks just like that, but I'm not sure. So then he walked in, and the mercy seat was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, blood, atonement, pain for sin, blood, they would take the lamb's blood, and the high priest would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So when he's saying the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, it's probably what that's pointing to. And then he says, uh, grace and peace to you, be multiplied, increased. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Think John 3, born again. You must be born again. What do you mean born again? It's a spiritual birth. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. Death is not a ceasing to exist. That's gibberish. It's a, that's a Gnostic teaching. It's a separation. Physical death is when my body loses the strength to hold on to my soul and my spirit, and they go to be, and those, they're separated. Spiritual death is when I'm separated from the presence of God. It's a separation. So if I'm only born once, I'm only born physically into this world, I die twice. I'm going to die a physical death. And there are some Bible teachers who even teach that the rapture will be a, that even the raptured will undergo a physical death and a resurrection. That, in other words, their bodies will be left there. And they make an interesting case. But I go through a physical death, all of us, and I go through a uh, spiritual death, separated from God for eternity. If I'm born twice, so if I'm born once, I'll die twice. If I'm born twice, I'll only die once. I'll only have that physical death where my body loses its strength to hold on to my spirit and soul. It goes to be with my Savior. Uh, John 14, he says, I come and get you personally. I don't delegate that. It's personal to me. Jesus comes and gets me. There may be angels involved, but Jesus is there, comes and gets me, brings me back to him to a place he's prepared for me, and I only die once. There is no spiritual death. There's no more separation from God, none of that. So he says, has begotten us again to a living hope. I mean, look, we're only in verse three and it's 656. 
Uh, there's no way. I mean, come on. Okay, has begotten us again to a living hope from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Well, what's that inheritance? Well, the hope is connected to the inheritance. Here's what the inheritance is. It's basically my salvation. To an inheritance incorruptible, in other words, you always have it, and undefiled, in other words, it's never going to be messed with. It's never going to be damaged or impaired or defiled or ruined or any of that. It doesn't expire. It doesn't go bad. And that does not fade away. Time can't touch it. In fact, I think, I don't know this, but I think it's even outside of the dimension of time itself where we'll be in eternity. I, I can't prove that, but I, I think uh, reserved in heaven for you. Who are you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time? And that word time is not chronos, where we get our word chronology, like timeline. It's kairos. In other words, the, the distinction in the Greek, typically, the distinction is that kairos is an appointment. It doesn't matter the year per se, but it's, it's a specified time, an appointment. So you can't just say, like today, you say, what time is it? You're talking chronology. But if you say, hey, what time is my appointment with the doctor or with this or with that? That's, that's the idea here. At the appointed time that, Jesus, that God the Father has established, Jesus is going to come back and fix all this, judge all evil, and then obviously we'll receive our full inheritance at that point, which will be amazing. And part of it involves, like I said, civil government to rule and reign under Jesus Christ. Uh, now, I don't know exactly what form of government that's going to look like, I can tell you it's not communism because that's thoroughly unbiblical. It's actually demonic. And communism requires the removal of God. It requires that atheism be brought in. So I can tell you it's not that. Uh, what exactly it's going to look like, I'm not naming party names. I'm not going to say libertarian. I'm not going to say anything like that. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it will be equitable. It will be just. It'll be perfect. It won't have rules that are flawed. I mean, we pass a law and then we realize, oh, that was not the right law. We need to amend that or just do away with it altogether. And that's okay. It's a learning experience for us. But it's, it's an experiment uh, in, in using the Constitution to protect the Constitution for us. But his Constitution, whatever that's going to look like, it's going to be perfect. So he says, uh, that's it. That's the inheritance you're going to say. So here's what Peter says in 1, 1 through 5. For however long that you're a temporary resident here, don't know how long that is, your hope needs to be based on the inheritance of your salvation that Jesus accomplished and that God personally guards, he even says that here, until the time of his appointment with all of us where at that time he will reward you, he'll dwell with you, and he'll have you rule with him over his kingdom. So in God's kingdom, new heavens and a new earth, part of his reward to those who are faithful to him, like I mentioned earlier, in this world is a position of authority in what his government, whatever the structure that's going to look like. Some of us, I think, have massively misunderstood our role as salt and light. And that, that parable that I mentioned earlier is Luke 19. If you want to go read that, go read Luke 19, 11 through 27. His reward is just that, its position in civil government. Look at 1, 6 through 9. That's the next section. We'll start to speed up here, hopefully. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, the purpose of your trials. What did I just say was the historical background to all this letter? Who's ruling? Nero, the guy's a lunatic. He's very possibly demon-possessed, literally. And so that's what they're sitting under. Now, they're not in Rome, so they're a little removed, so it's a little better, but still. That's what they're sitting under, the Roman Empire. So he talks in 1, 6 through 9 about the purpose of your trials. Peter introduces trials, he introduces suffering in this passage, and I think the reason he introduces this topic so early in his letter is because so much of what he says throughout the rest of this letter speaks to Christians who are struggling to endure the suffering that people who live under another kingdom, Satan's kingdom, and usually they don't even know they're, they're living under his kingdom, bring on them, the suffering they bring on them. Suffering threads through the entire letter because Genuine Christianity, and he's, Peter's later going to say, don't think it's weird that you suffer, it's normal. Because genuine Christianity and the biblical teaching that goes with it is honest with you. It doesn't lie to you. It doesn't try to tell you that everything's going to be okay, everything will be easy in this life, when that's not the case. That is not the truth. It's, so it would be doing you a disservice to tell you that. Peter knows that, and so immediately he starts talking about trials. And 
the, the real situation is that there will be things you will endure that will be excruciating and sometimes extremely difficult. So that's 1, 6 through 9. Look at 6. In this, the fact that your inheritance is kept, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, so, you're t- so your suffering's temporary. See that? For a little while. If need be, it is sometimes necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But he says there's a purpose to it. So that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. See, Peter mentions fire several times throughout, the, a few times throughout this letter, and I don't think that's uh, accidental. I think he's bringing this to their attention. The, the fire in Rome and Nero blaming the Christians for it is fresh on their minds. It may have even happened the year this was written. So he says, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be careful how I explain this because it's going to come full circle at the end of verse 8. But at the end of verse 7, the Greek grammar is crystal clear. It's not, okay, hear me all the way through. Don't give up on me halfway through this statement, okay? The Greek grammar is not saying Jesus' praise, Jesus' honor, Jesus' glory. It's just the opposite. It's Jesus', it's your praise, your honor, your glory that Jesus does for you. It's very clear. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not just his, it's a both and. But hold on, hang with me. Whom having not seen, you still love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of, what's the next word? Glory, that is his glory. So yes, he honors me and blesses me, but that still, even then, that ends up returning back and glorifying him. So it, there's, a, there's a both and going on, not just one or not just the other. Uh, so that's both, both of those are very clear, right, just here in verse 7 and 8. So he honors me for following him and being obedient to him and my faith and all, all those things just because he wants to, and then that, but that does result in me turning around and glorifying him, and that's the, that's the end goal, obviously. Of course, I'm not saying that we're more important than him. I'm just saying it's a both and, and then uh, we end up glorifying him. So it's very clear. Uh, so Peter says in this section that, look, you'd have to set your joy on your salvation through the faith that God has accomplished for you, and you have to understand, not on anything else, and you have to understand that the purpose of trials is to show that your faith is actually genuine. It's actually legitimate. It actually stands up. And God will praise you and honor you, and this is exactly what he's saying here, and glorify you in the future specifically for enduring those different kinds of trials. So in other words, they're not in vain. And the joy that you have because of that will result in God being glorified also. So I love that. It's a complete picture. It's a both and. Chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 is the next section. It's the mystery of the Messiah. He talks about this mystery, and we'll talk about what that means. That's verse 10 through 12 of chapter 1. So let's look at that. Chapter 1, verse 10, of this salvation. So the salvation he just got finished talking about. God reserves it. It has an inheritance attached to it that you'll receive at the end of time. You get to enjoy it now. Later in the future kingdom, you'll get to enjoy all of it. Of this salvation, the prophets. Now, who's he talking about? Old Testament prophets. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. They tried to figure it out. They tried to look for it. And search carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Verse 11, searching what or in what manner of time. So they tried to understand it. They tried to understand what circumstances, when it would happen. Searching what or what manner of time, the spirit of Christ who was in them, what did he just say? The Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament writings through their prophets. The spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand two things, the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah, and the glories that would follow. And what's cool is Peter's actually going to break down both. We think of sufferings of Christ, and we think of the glories that follow, and sometimes we just go applicational here, and we talk about the glories and all the application that stems from that. Peter actually does both. He also camps out in the sufferings of Christ in two different passages in this letter and applies that to you and says, look, because Christ suffered and this is how he did it, this is your model too. This is how you're supposed to endure suffering because Jesus did that way too. So he's got two other passages that walk that application out. So those two things is what the prophets wrote about, the sufferings of Christ, the glories that would follow. Listen to verse 12. 
This is amazing. When you read the Old Testament, you don't understand what all the Old Testament prophets do or don't understand about what they're writing. Did they understand all of it? Did they not? Did they know who the Messiah would be? They didn't know his name would be Jesus, but what, what did they know? Well, we're not totally sure, but look at verse 12. He does tell us something. To them, the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, to you. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that inspired their writings. is the same Holy Spirit leading us in preaching in God's word. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which, the word even's not there, but he's kind of saying things which even the angels desire to look into. So look, even the angels are watching. So that's the mystery of the Messiah. He's saying because of what Jesus did, you right now sitting in your seat tonight, you get to enjoy and experience what the Old Testament prophets tried desperately to understand, but they could not understand fully. And they were told they would not be able to understand fully. They weren't, they weren't getting the whole picture. They were just getting glimpses of it. And the angels even are fascinated to watch this play out. They're sitting here watching it with interest. And that is the mystery of the Messiah. So anytime the, the, and the Greek word sounds like the English word, it's mysterion. Anytime the New Testament says mystery, what it typically means is it's something that was previously hidden completely or at least, have you ever looked through uh, like this, window pane glass? Have you ever looked through hazed glass? You can see that there's something on the other side. If it's close to the glass, you can even see the outline of it, but you can't see it in all its detail. That's kind of what the Old Testament prophets would look through. But what we get, the glass is completely removed and we get to see it high def. And they would have jumped at the chance to do that. And so mystery means something that was either completely hidden or hazy. They knew it was coming, but they didn't understand all of it. That today is completely revealed. It's completely unveiled, 100%. There's no confusion. There's no misunderstanding. There's none of that. So that's that section. It's just amazing. Something previously veiled, something previously covered, something previously wrapped that now is put on display. Not only is it unwrapped, it's put on display on the top shelf with a light shining on it, beaming, going, oh, you know, so everyone can look at it and see that's what it is in, in all its clarity and fullness and everything. That's what a mystery is. Old Testament, they didn't quite get it. They knew parts of it, and God was revealing more and more throughout history. New Testament, boom, it's right in your face. It's amazing. So let's say you're exchanging all your Christmas gifts, okay? Then one last Christmas gift is brought in by someone else. Everyone knows it's the biggest gift. Everyone somehow knows because they've been told it's the best gift that's gonna be opened at all ever. Then the person who brought the gift in and set it down, after having you wrap the box, but you don't know what's in it, after having you put a bow on it, no glitter, ladies, there's no... There's no glitter in the Bible. There's no glitter in the kingdom. That's done away with. Just trust me on that. Then the person, after they have you wrap it for them, says, oh, by the way, none of you can open it and experience what's in it yet. You have to just sit there and look at it. You know it's great. You know it's coming, but you don't know what's in it. And you've wrapped it, not for yourself. You can't open it. You've wrapped it so that another generation could open it and see what it is. That's kind of like what God showed the Old Testament prophets when they were writing about the future Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and all the awesome benefits that we enjoy and get to fellowship in that would follow that. We're saved the same way that the Old Testament prophets were saved. The death of Christ on the cross applies to us when we trust him as our savior, just like it went back in time on chronology to apply to them when they took God at his word and their attitude, just like ours was, whatever he told them, yes, sir, I want that. And so they were saved just the same way, even though they didn't know all of of how that would play out yet. So we're saved the same way the Old Testament prophets were saved, but we get to experience and see all that God has prepared for us to enjoy They knew it was coming for them, but they didn't get to see it in their lifetime. That's the difference, and it's a massive difference. And Peter's bringing up this fact in the text right here. Why? To encourage them. What are they going through? Suffering, immense suffering. Cultural rejection for following Christ, sometimes verbal abuse, sometimes physical abuse, maybe sometimes both. 
and they're enduring this, and they're, they're kind of down on themselves. Peter's lifting them up, and he doesn't do a lot of correcting in this letter. He does some good theological teaching, but he doesn't do a lot of correcting. Like Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians, <laughs> he d- half the letter is correction. In fact, he rips them so hard. In fact, he says there's another letter. It's called the severe letter to Corinth. There's three letters, at least, maybe four, written to Corinth. We only have two of them. We don't know why we only have two of them. Only, God only chose to put two of them in the canon of Scripture. But the third, at least there's three, the third one Paul mentions, he calls it the severe letter. He rips them so hard, God chose not to put it in the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians, he, he, he gets on to them about several different things, and sometimes he's even being sarcastic in, while he's getting on to them. <laughs> so Peter doesn't do as much of that here. They're under incredible suffering, and what Peter is doing, he's more doing encouragement. So he says, look, I know you're going through something tough, but look, he's using this Old Testament story. Why did I give you all this stuff? Peter's saying, you, what you get to enjoy in Christ is amazing. It's way better than what they got to see and enjoy and experience. They just got glimpses of it. You get to see the whole thing. He's using this to encourage them right off the bat because they need it. The Holy Spirit knows what you need, okay? So if you're in one passage one day and you're reading it and it's hitting you in, across the head, right, like this, or did y'all ever watch that? video where, where the Bible, th- and they go and they hit people with the Bible, and it's a joke. So it's kind of like that. The Bible sometimes just, boom, it's right in your face. It corrects something you've been doing that was dumb and foolish, and it says, hey, you need to do it this way. But then there are other passages, and you'll be in it, and you need that passage. The Holy Spirit writes both, and there are passages that lift you up and encourage you and say, hey, you can't do this, but God's in you. God can, and so you can, and so it's going to be okay. It encourages you. It lifts you up. The Bible does both. It's amazing like that. So, look, the point is, you get to experience and enjoy a Messiah who, to them, the Old Testament prophets, was still a mystery. One thirteen through 21 is the next section. He basically says, don't go back to your old life. That's verse 13 through 21. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, we don't understand that phrase, but the way they wore their outfits back then, it basically meant prepare your mind. Get ready. Think. Be sober, rest your hope fully, we talks about hope again, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about Jesus' return again. Here we go, he's bringing this stuff up. He brings it up multiple times. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, and he quotes the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You see what he says? Throughout the time of your stay here? That's why I think when he uses the word pilgrims, he's not just saying you're scattered. He means by that, not just the fact that you're in Turkey, not Israel. He means anywhere in the world that you are, this world is temporary. This first life is a training ground for the kingdom to come, for what's to come. You're just a temporary resident. That's important to be a resident, but it's also important just to realize that, hey, this is temporary. So he says that multiple times. He says, throughout the time of your stay here. I don't think he meant, you're living in Turkey, you're going to come back to Israel in 10 years. Just wait. I don't think he means, I think he's talking about here on earth, in this life, waiting on this next life. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but you were redeemed, he says, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, was made evident. Same thing as he said about the Old Testament prophets, right? They said he's coming, but they didn't know when. Boom, you've got it. You know when, you see it all. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so God's glorified also, so that your faith and hope are in God. So he says, don't go back to your old life. If you base your hope on anything, just like we talked about joy, if you base your hope on anything other than Jesus and the salvation you have because of what he did for you, then honestly, you might as well quit now because you're going to be massively disappointed. Setting your hope on anything other than him is going to let you down every time. You might as well go back to your old life now. You might as well do that now. Don't even wait. Don't, I mean, why waste time? You have, you have to set your hope on him. Otherwise, 
You might as well quit. You might as well pack out. Uh, if you base your hope on Jesus, I, what Peter's saying is it changes everything. If you don't, you might as well pack out. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be... Uh, I don't mean to share the illustration that I put in my notes here that I think I should share. I don't mean to share it being crass or rude toward the people I'm about to talk about. Okay, so don't, don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. I simply, for me, it's just a, a mental reminder, a spiritual check, reminder to be focused on the right things. That's why I'm sharing this illustration. So every Sunday morning when I drive here to work, um, I, I live on the west side of town. So the GMFL fields that are on the south side of the Scarborough Sports Complex, where the fields are, uh, which there's an oil company across the street. What's that gas company across the street from it? Uh, Oxy. It's right across the street, okay? So I drive through that little street, come in to get on the loop and come here every Sunday morning early. Well, the last few, there have been people playing. Now, they should use them. I mean, that's a tax money black hole, that whole complex. So we might as well get our use out of it. So... I'm not dogging them, I'm not throwing them under the bus, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't, they should use it. We should use it every day so we can get our money out of it, some of our money out of it. Uh, and so I drive past there, and the last few Sundays, Sunday mornings, what are they doing? They're playing football, maybe one of the fields they're playing soccer, and I'm thinking, it's, it's a reminder for me that if that's their source of hope and joy, then they won't have anything of substance to get them through suffering and trials. If their life falls apart, what are they going to have? And to me, that, I don't, some people get the wrong impression. I don't use that reminder to judge them. I use that reminder to just say a quick prayer for them as I'm driving by and go, how sad is it that if your life falls apart, all you have is a sports league to fall back on, or a football team, or a golf tournament, or a, you know, fill in the blank, a, a lifetime Christmas movie, ladies, you know, or uh, decorations and glitter. How sad, if you don't set your hope and joy on Christ and him only, you have nothing to fall back on when, and, and to me, that's, uh, man, that's just sad. Now, hey, maybe 5%, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe 5% of the people out there doing that, you don't have to do church on Sunday morning. Uh, Jews might do it from Friday night to Saturday night. That's great. You can do it on Friday night, you can do it on Saturday night, you can do it on Sunday night. We do it on Sunday morning because that's Resurrection Sunday. That's Resurrection Day, when, the morning when Jesus got back up out of the tomb. But there's no verse that says, it says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It says, meet often. It doesn't give a frequency requirement. It doesn't give a time of day or day of the week. So look, maybe 5% of the people out there had church on Saturday night. That's great. And they're using that as their outreach and their ministry. Fantastic. Uh, so I'm not throwing them all under the bus. I'm just saying... Um, if that's their church, man, I, that's, that breaks my heart. Um, not in a judgmental, ooh, you shouldn't play football on Sunday attitude way. That's, that's the old legalism attitude. But in a, um, if you're doing that and you're never involved with God's people, what do you have? What do you have as a support system <laughs> when your life crumbles? Uh, look at one, that's why Jesus said, he said, look, if you hear everything I teach, Jesus is saying this, if you hear everything I teach and you do them, you're like the guy that built his house on the rock. What does he say? What's the rest of that? They even made a kid's song out of it. What's he say? The rains fell. The wise man built his house on the rock. The rains fell. The floods came up. I think it, maybe it even mentions the wind. It beats on the house. The house stands because it's built on the rock. Then there's the foolish guy. He built his house on the sand. And then, so what is he talking about with the weather? The trials of life come. When difficulties come, the guy that built his house on the sand, he said, anybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, they go, yeah, God, that's nice, but have a nice day. I'm going to go do this instead. It's like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and when trials came, it fell, and he says, and the kids' song is great. And the kids, if you even watch them, they go, and the house on the sand went smash. And they all, that's fun for them. So that's fine. So they go smash, and they're all laughing and smiling because they got to yell in Sunday school or whatever, or on Wednesday night. And that's fine. But the, added, the real attitude in the text is just the opposite. It's sad. He says, it, it fell, and great was its fall. So, ah, uh, I just, uh, breaks my heart. 
Um, so 1, 13 through 21, he says, look, you, you don't have to go back to your old life. 1, 22 through 2, 3, Peter's going to say that your love for each other is connected to growth in God's word. That's 1.22 through chapter 2, verse 3, the next section in your notes. Your love for each other is connected to growth in God's word. He's going to say, look, if, if, um, if you're not growing in God's word, ultimately, and the word here for word, by the way, is spoken. So it's church teaching and preaching that's probably in view. It's not the other word for word that's the written overall message. He uses that too in this book, but not there. He says, if you're not growing in God's word, teaching and preaching is in view, then you're going to short-circuit the relationships you're called to foster, particularly those inside the church. So, and by the way, the church is not this building. This building is where the church meets. The church is those of us who are bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, who have faith in him for salvation. That's the church. We could meet out in Roses, and Roses would be the temporary church. This building is not... It's where we meet. We could meet out in a field and have church. Now, most of you are glad we're not meeting in a field, of course, yes, but and we want to take care of this building. It's, it's significant. It's important. I'm not throwing that under the bus, uh, but I'm just saying, you, you catch my point. It's us. 2, 4 through 8, he talks about the temple stone of stumbling. That's chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. When he uses the phrase stone of stumbling in this passage, chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, he's talking about the temple in the Old Testament where you worship God. He's talking about the construction of the temple. i got to tell this real quick. I know we're uh, short on time, and we'll rush through the other uh, sections, and we won't even get to them all, but you've got them in your notes. But uh, this story is amazing, too amazing not to share. I shared it with our young marriage class on our Christmas party. So, So the Jewish rabbis, not Scripture, the Jewish rabbis tell the story that when Israel began the work on Solomon's temple, they had 80,000 stonemasons working on the construction project. They were quarrying the stone for the temple from another area where they would cut the stone, they would finish the stone, they would fit the stone because they knew where they were going to put it, and then they would transport them. We're still not sure how they did that. Then they would transport the stones to the temple construction area. Look at 1 Kings 6, walks through some of that. The temple took seven years to complete. So they were working on it for a long time. And they had to polish and smooth and fit the stones at the quarry, not at the temple site, because God's idea for the temple site was that it was so holy you weren't supposed to hear a chisel and a hammer and all the noise of construction noise. So it took them seven years to finish it. So um, I better not say that. If I, um, okay, yeah, let's move on. Uh, the, going to make fun of something. They came across a stone in the quarry that the master stonemason had sent to the temple construction area to be used for the project. It was finished. It was complete. They sent it there. But when it arrived and the builders saw it, they had no idea what it was for. They looked at it. They said, what is this? We have no idea what this is for. So it's kind of large. It was kind of in the way. So they pushed it to the side and they kept working on construction of the temple. As they built the temple over those seven years, this particular stone kept getting in the way. They moved it over here. It was in the way. Someone tripped over it. They moved it over there. It was in the way. Someone stumbled over it. They moved it over there. It was still in the way. So eventually they said, look, let's just move it to the area where the rubble is so we won't stumble over it anymore. So for seven years, the stonemasons cut and finished the stone. The stones were moved to the temple site. The temple builders worked on assembling every single piece and all the decorations for the temple. They finally come down to the last stone that they need to be set in place, which was the lintel or the capstone. It's called the cornerstone, but technically this was the capstone over the entrance to the temple. And those of you who are in construction might know this. This this stone serves the important function of holding part of the structure up so that the stones above it would rest down on it so that they could remove the scaffolding so the building would stand on its own. But they couldn't find the stone. It wasn't there. So they sent word back to the quarry, to the master stonemason, and they said, hey, where's the final stone? Where's the capstone? Where's the cornerstone? Where's the lintel stone? And he sent word back to him, and he said, we sent that to you years ago. It should be there. That might sound like a construction project you've worked on or, or heard of, or an oil rig site. Hey, that tool should be there already. So... They started looking again for it. They even went back and they said, look, let's look through the trash. So they even looked back and looked through the rubble until they stumbled over that stone that they had put in with the rubble because they didn't see where it fit and they thought it was worthless. 
So they took it, they placed it as the capstone over the door to the holy place, and guess what? It was a perfect fit. So they removed the scaffolding supports, and sure enough, the entire building rested perfectly on that stone. The stone they had looked at and they thought was worthless because they couldn't see a use for it. They couldn't see how it helped them in the moment that it was sent to them, that they received it, was the very stone, this is lining up with Old Testament and the Jews and God's people, okay, was the very stone they needed so that the temple could stand on its own and be complete and be finished. And you couldn't use it till it was finished, that's the point. So with that background, look at two, four through eight. Coming to him, Jesus, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, think of that story I just told you, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, so just like Christ is, now he's made you, are being built up into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So you are now individual priests, just like the Old Testament priests. You now carry the responsibility to offer sacrifices, to do ministry for the kingdom, not just the priesthood, like uh, part of their function in the Old Testament. Peter says, look, you're the royal priesthood, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Listen, behold, verse six, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, like the guy that built his house on the sand, he quotes the Old Testament again, and he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You cannot have the temple or the sacrifices or any of that salvation without him. You remove him, you don't have anything. You have a, you have a meaningless, empty building. And he says, and not just that, not only has he become the chief cornerstone, but to those who don't believe in him, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Just like the uh, stonemasons who built the temple stumbled over the stone at the construction site. They stumble being disobedient in, uh, they stumble being disobedient in the word. That's the other word for word, the entire message, the logos. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So, uh, that's incredible. Um, and you look at chapter two, verse five, you look at what Jesus says about you, that you're a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, that you're living stones. The implication of that is just amazing. Chapter two, verse nine through 10, he says, uh, he continues this idea. He says, you're a royal priesthood. That's chapter two, verse nine through 10. You're his own special people to proclaim his praises. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 17 is the call to biblical citizenship. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 17, that's the call to biblical citizenship. Where he's going to say, look, you're a temporary resident here. Uh, God is going to come back one day and judge everything. Since that's the case, you need to submit yourselves to every institution of man for the Lord's sake. Not for the institution's sake, for the Lord's sake. Whether to the king is supreme.